sermon just by reading the whole text of scripture that we're studying. We're not going to do that this morning just for the sake of time, but we will read through all of it over the course of studying it. So let me begin with a word of prayer and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that we get the privilege of approaching you. God, that we can, we can live in your presence. God, we can cry out to you in prayer. We can sing praises to you through music and you actually hear us. You listen to us. God, you love us. You, you long for us to draw near to you. It says in James that if we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. What a privilege, Lord. So God, we pray this morning as we study this passage that you would speak to our hearts, that you would humble us, that you would open our minds to understand all it is that you have to teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin this morning with two questions. And the first question is, how do you know Jesus is alive? It's an important question. How do you know Jesus is alive? Last week was Easter Sunday. We looked at the resurrection. And for the last few weeks in the Gospel of Luke, we've been looking at the amazing set of facts surrounding Jesus' death and burial. Luke presents us with a story that basically has to be true. It virtually must be true because it's so easily falsifiable. If it didn't happen the way Luke says, everybody would have known about it right away. Look at what he says about Jesus' death. He says that Jesus of Nazareth stood on trial and was convicted before the high priest of Israel. That's the, that's the most powerful and influential religious leader in the nation of Israel at that time. And their whole Sanhedrin. This is the highest court in the nation of Israel. Seventy members, highest religious court, but they also had some legislative power. So this would be like the combination of the U.S. Senate and the Supreme Court combined. Very, very influential court. Jesus is convicted by them. Then he's brought before Pontius Pilate. They didn't have the authority to exercise capital punishment, so he's brought before Pontius Pilate and then King Herod the Tetrarch, which are the two most powerful non-Jews in the nation of Israel, particularly Pontius Pilate. He is the highest Roman official in the province, which means that he has the greatest degree of political and military power in the nation. He's publicly arraigned and flogged by the Romans at the governor's headquarters. This is like the state capital. Very, very public event, public place. Eventually, he's crucified between two other criminals at Golgotha. And the idea is that there were hundreds, if not thousands, of eyewitnesses to all the important events surrounding Jesus' death. And some of those eyewitnesses, they're not just nameless, faceless onlookers in a crowd. They are some of the highest rollers in Israel during the life of Jesus. They're the most powerful people there, which makes it even harder to fabricate this story. Imagine if I told you, hey, do you know that I was involved in a Supreme Court case recently? Yeah, um, again and I, for years, my wife and I, we have wanted to have chickens in our backyard. And the city of Altoona won't let us do it. And so eventually, we decided to sue them. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. Miedema versus the city of Altoona. Would you believe me? I hope not. <laughs> I hope you wouldn't. But the reason I hope you wouldn't believe me is because that claim 
would be instantly verifiable or falsifiable. You can go to uscourts.gov, you can go to supremecourt.gov, and all the cases are there. All the opinions, all the decisions, the rulings, they're all documented. So you can't just lie about going before the Supreme Court and get away with it. Which means Jesus' death must have happened the way Luke describes. Otherwise, Christianity, it'd be laughable. This story would be laughable if it wasn't true. And when it comes to Jesus' burial, it's the same situation. Jesus is buried, Luke says, in the empty tomb of Joseph of Arimathea who's a member of this Jewish Sanhedrin who sentenced him to death, which means he's a very well-known man. He's a very influential man. He's a wealthy man. He's well-connected. He's a high-profile person. Jesus is buried, therefore, in a very publicly known location. He's buried in an above-ground tomb, which was unusual. This was reserved only for wealthy, important people. And then that tomb was sealed and guarded by Roman soldiers. Again, you can't just make this up and get away with it. Imagine... If a couple of years ago, my grandfather passed away a couple of years ago, and imagine if I told you, yeah, we had, the, we had the funeral and we buried him in Kim Reynolds' backyard at the governor's mansion. And then, you know, they were so kind, they gave us some secret service to, to guard the gravesite because they said, man, we just love your family. We love your grandpa. He was a great man, and we want to honor him. If I told you that again, You probably wouldn't believe me because that would be such special treatment. And if you wanted to verify it, you could just go there. You could just go to the governor's mansion and you could find out if what I was saying was true or not. Can't just make a claim like that unless it's actually true. And so the details of the events give us great confidence in what we're told in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 24, which is on the first day of the week. Very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in, but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Jesus died, Jesus was buried, and on the third day, the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty. That is a historical fact. You can take it to the bank. But it doesn't necessarily answer the question, how do you know he's alive? How do you know Jesus is alive? You can be confident the tomb was empty, but how do you know he's risen? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. This is the most foundational truth to Christianity, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So how do we know it's true? Second question, how do you know Jesus personally? Very different type of question. How do you know he's alive, forensically? (laughs) And then how do you know Jesus personally? In other words, how do you have an actual relationship with Jesus? The Bible says the whole point of the Christian life is to know God. And not just know facts about God, but know him the way you know a person. Know him the way you know your spouse. Know him the way you know your closest friends, which means you're going to need to spend time with him. You talk to him. And he talks back. You know his mind, his heart. You know his plans. You know what he values and prioritizes. You know what pleases him and what doesn't please him. You know his heart and he knows yours. That's the way relationships work. And without these two types of knowledge, a person cannot be a Christian. You have to have knowledge of the gospel facts, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and what it means for you. And you have to have personal knowledge of Jesus in relationship. 
And so to sum up our two questions, we're asking, where do you get these two types of knowledge? Well, Jesus is going to show us in this passage. The risen Jesus, he meets two of his disciples. They're walking from Jerusalem on the road to a town called Emmaus on that first Easter Sunday. And these two disciples, they have neither of these types of knowledge. And Jesus shows them the source of both. So we're going to break the story down into three parts. Part one, we're going to meet these two disciples. Here's what it says. Verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together, they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. So this is an interesting story. Two of Jesus' disciples... And he walks up on them as they're just going on their way, having a dispute about what had happened. And they don't know it's him. They don't recognize that it's him. And if we want to understand the story, we need to know a little bit about who these guys are. What do we know about these two disciples? We have to go all the way back to verse 9 of chapter 24. So in verse 9, the women, followers of Jesus, they had just discovered the empty tomb. They go there. Remember, they they think that they're going to put spices on the body. They're going to honor Jesus. They had to take a day off because of the Sabbath, and they're back at the tomb. And they find that the stone is rolled away, the guards are gone, and Jesus' body is nowhere to be found. Verse 9 says this, Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven, that's the twelve minus Judas, and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. So he went away amazed at what had happened. The very next verse says, Now that same day two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus. So grammatically, the two of them are included in the eleven and all the rest from verse 9. Which means these guys are part of the inner circle of Jesus' followers. So they are not the 11. This is not Peter, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, not one of the 11, but they are part of Jesus' inner circle of followers. We get more verification of this later. When they're describing what happened to Jesus in verse 22, they say, moreover, some women from our group, those are the same women that we just read about, Mary Magdalene and Joanna, They astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb. That's Peter. So they're with Peter and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. So what this means is that these two disciples, they were there for the triumphal entry into Jerusalem earlier that week. They were there for the teaching at the temple, the cleansing of the temple. They were possibly even there watching from a distance at Jesus' crucifixion. They are part of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples and followers, though not the closest inner circle. That would be Peter, James, and John. Then you expand it to the 12, now the 11. But they're, they're in that close network of real followers of Jesus. Verse 18 says this. The one named Cleopas answered him, answered Jesus. 
Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? What things? Jesus asked them. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. So we know, not the 11, but they are part of the inner circle of Jesus' followers. We also know they were hoping that Jesus was the Messiah. They thought he was the Messiah. We also know that they no longer believed that he was the Messiah. Because he's dead. He can't be. He's gone. And so verse 17 says they're discouraged. They're grieving. They're sad. They're confused. We thought he was going to be the one. We thought he was the Messiah. We'd given our lives to following him, and now he's dead. We don't know what to do. That's what we know about the two disciples. And what happens to these guys is they're walking to Emmaus from Jerusalem. Luke says it's about seven miles outside the city. Likely, they live there. So the Passover is over. Jesus is dead. And so they're going home. What else are they going to do? Jesus joins them on the road. He says, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> what, what is this dispute you're having? What are you arguing about? And they're like, are you serious? We're talking about what everyone's talking about. Everyone in Jerusalem's talking about the same thing. We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. This is where we get part two. One commentator called this portion of the text, the gospel according to Cleopas, which I think is an apt description. Verse 18 says, the one named Cleopas answered him. Now, how does Cleopas summarize these things about Jesus of Nazareth? It, it almost reads like a gospel. It almost reads like a creed, like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we passed on to you that which was most important. It reads like that. So he tells about the life of Jesus, that Jesus was a real man. He talks about the ministry of Jesus as a powerful prophet. He says he was powerful both in action, so this means his miracles, his healings, casting out demons, and in speech, his teachings, his sermons, and his parables. And this is a fair summary of most of Luke's gospel. If you look at Luke's gospel, it is, it's, it's, it is summarized, or I'm sorry, totally having a blank on the word I'm looking for. It's organized. There it is. It is organized, chapters 4 through 9, according to his works, his actions, his miracles, and then chapters 10 through 21 are, are, are his teachings. And so he gets it right. And then he talks about the death of Jesus, that Jesus was sentenced by the Jews and crucified by the Romans. And then he talks about the empty tomb. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Peter went to check it out, didn't see him. And so these two disciples, they have all the basic facts of the gospel. But the gospel means good news. That's what the word means. It means good news. And what they say is not good news at all. In fact, this is terrible news. It's horrible news. They're discouraged. They're grieving. They're confused. They're disappointed. Why? Well, because they don't know that Jesus is alive. 
They don't believe that Jesus is actually alive, and they don't understand really who Jesus is. They don't know him personally, which is pretty remarkable, because you remember who these guys are. They were part of the inner circle, which means they've seen his miracles firsthand. They have heard him teach firsthand, and they never really understood who exactly they were dealing with. They're not just onlookers in the crowd. These are real followers of Christ. Remember, last week we talked about how Jesus said some pretty crazy things. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross and lay down your life in order to follow me. Jesus talked about counting the cost before you would follow him. And these guys are real followers. And I think if you would have asked them earlier in the week on Wednesday, when Jesus is teaching the temple, if you were one of the people in the crowds and you said, hey, you guys are his followers. Why should I follow Jesus? Why should we follow Jesus? What do you think they would have said? Well, I think they would have said, you should follow him because he's the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the savior of Israel. You should follow him because he's a powerful teacher. We've never heard anybody teach like this. I mean, just listen to him. You should follow him because he's a powerful prophet. He's like Moses or Elijah, perhaps even more powerful. Look at his miracles. Look at his healings. Look at his ability to command even evil spirits, demons. He is the one who's going to redeem Israel. That's the pitch you would have gotten. Of course you should follow him. Of course you should give your whole life to him. And they were right about all of those things, and they missed one detail. They were wrong about what Jesus would redeem Israel from. So what we know, all of the disciples, the the 12 and the rest, they thought that Jesus was going to overthrow Rome and usher in a geopolitical physical kingdom. This is what they had in mind. They thought Jesus was going to overthrow Pilate, kick Caesar and all the Roman soldiers out, and sit on a physical throne in Jerusalem, ruling like his father David, King David. This is what they had in mind. This is likely why Judas eventually betrayed Jesus. Because Jesus kept saying, no, no, no. (laughs) We're going to Jerusalem, and then they're going to kill me. That's what's going to happen. Peter says, Jesus, you've got to stop saying that. We're going we're to lose momentum. People are not going to follow us if you keep saying this nonsense about them killing you. And Jesus said what to Peter? He said, get behind me, Satan. Jesus was not veiled about this. He said this was the plan the whole time. And eventually Judas said, I'm out on this weirdo. This guy can't be the Messiah. And he betrays him to death. And so all of his disciples, they had a misplaced hope that blinded them to both the sweetness and the truth of the gospel. Jesus was the Messiah. He did come to redeem Israel, but not from Rome. He came to redeem Israel from their sin, from their separation from God. They had rebelled for centuries against God, and so he came to die as the sacrificial lamb to atone for their sins so they could have what God had promised them. Earlier this year, we were studying through the book of Genesis. And for centuries, for millennia, at this point, God has promised the children of Abraham to bless them. And the blessing is a relationship with Him. This is what what they were created for. This is what you were created for. 
a personal, relational knowledge of God like a child with his father, like a wife with her husband who loves her. This is what Jesus came for. I want you to imagine for a second this scenario. It's a little bit weird, but hopefully it will help get some things clicking in your brain. I want you to imagine if LeBron James' agent contacted you. Maybe it's email, phone call, I don't know. He gets a hold of you. He says, listen, uh, Mr. James, King James, he would like you to do something for him. He would like you to do his dirty laundry once a week. And if you're in, he's going to personally text you and coordinate with you. Maybe he'll give you a phone call. And then once a week, he's going to drop by your house and he's going to give you a basket full of his dirty laundry. Are you in or are you out? (laughs) And you could insert your favorite celebrity or your favorite athlete or whoever. I don't even like LeBron James. I don't even watch basketball, but I'm telling you, if I was in this scenario, I'd be all in. (laughs) I mean, I would feel honored to fold LeBron James socks and underwear. I mean, I'd be like, I'd be like, LeBron James is going to text me? I mean, he's going to call me. He's going to show up at my house. I don't care if he's got his dirty laundry. I would feel honored to be a part of his life in any way. There's something in us that wants to be close to great people. And my guess is most of you would probably feel similarly. I don't know. And what Jesus said And what the whole Bible declares is that the creator of the universe, God Almighty, he exists, and you can know him. Think about that. Not just like do his dirty laundry. You can be his child. You can sit at his table as his son or daughter. You can have him as your personal counselor, comforter, and friend. And the only thing preventing that is your sin. That's it. You need to be made holy like Him. You need to be transformed. You need to be cleansed and forgiven. And that's why Jesus had to die to redeem you so you could have a relationship with God. That's why Jesus is called Savior. He didn't come to save you from Rome or poverty or sickness or loneliness. He came to save you from sin so you could know Him. Here's a question I want you to consider. What do you want most from God? Have you ever thought about this? What do you want most out of your relationship with God? I think what we see in this passage, and you see it all over the Gospels, you see it with the disciples prior to the resurrection, is that if what you want most from God is something He can do for you, or give to you, rather than God Himself, you're going to miss Him. You will miss Him. You'll miss Him the same way these disciples are walking down the road, and He's right there, and they're oblivious. Because they want something else. They want something Jesus can do for them. They don't just want Jesus Himself. Now that doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask God for things. That doesn't mean that God can't or won't do things for you or provide things for you. He can and He will. In fact, He commands us. He says, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. But sometimes you'll ask and God, in His love and care and sovereign wisdom, will say, no, that's not what's best for you. But you can still have me. You still get the greatest treasure, which is Him And if you 
if you get those things reversed in your priorities in your soul, and you say, God, you're awesome, but give me this. <laughs> God, I love you so much, but will you please do this for me? And that's what you want most. You're going to miss the sweetness of what it means to know God. And so these two disciples of Jesus, they missed what they could have had in Christ because they were distracted by something else that was so much less valuable and less exciting. And so even though they knew Jesus, technically, they hung out with him, they followed him around, they didn't really know him. They didn't really know who he was. They didn't really know who they were dealing with. And on the road to Emmaus, they didn't know him at all. They didn't even recognize him. He's right there in front of their faces. This is where we get to part three, which we'll call the gospel according to Jesus. So we got Cleopas's version of the gospel, not a gospel at all, not good news. Now we get the gospel according to Jesus. Now what Jesus is about to do, he has two objectives. He is going to explain his true identity and purpose. He's going to give them the full message of the gospel in all its entirety. And he's going to convince these two disciples that he is indeed alive. Now, here's something to think about. If you were in Jesus's position, I know that's, you know, probably close to blasphemy (laughs) to think about this, but just bear with me. If you were Jesus in this situation, you're resurrected bodily from death. You're walking on the road with two of your followers and friends, and you have these two goals. You want to communicate clearly the full message of the gospel, and you want to utterly convince them that you are alive. What would you do? What would your strategy be? What would be the very best way to convince these guys that you're actually back from the dead? You are the Son of God Himself. I can tell you what I would do. I would just show up. I'd I'd jump out from the bushes. Surprise! It's me, Jesus! I'm alive! Isn't that amazing? Everything I said was true. Here I am. What could possibly be more convincing than that? But Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, what he does is somewhat confusing. It says they were prevented from recognizing him. This is in the passive voice, which means it's something being done to them. So it's not their fault. It's not like these guys in in the course of three days forgot what Jesus looked like or what he sounded like. It's not like Jesus shows up and he's got the glasses with the fake nose and mustache. He's like wearing a disguise. That's not what's happening. He's not taken on a different form or something like that. This is the real risen Jesus, the man, their friend, who they've been following around for the last few years, and they can't recognize him. This is a supernatural prevention. Jesus does not allow them to recognize him. Why in the world would he do that? If his goal is to reveal his resurrection and his identity, verse 25, he said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. This is amazing. He says, you're slow to believe. What does that mean? It means these guys had maximum exposure to gospel truths. They were devout Jews, and so they were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. They're not hearing them for the first time here. And they had personal contact with Jesus. They'd heard him teach the scriptures many times before. They've seen his miracles, and they still don't 
get it. (laughs) They're slow on the uptake. They don't know Him, and they don't believe in the resurrection. So what does Jesus see as the solution? Verse 25, or I'm sorry, 27. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted for them the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. This would have been over a two-hour conversation. Walking seven miles, the conversation continues when they get there. They sit down for dinner. They're still talking. What is Jesus doing? Remember, they don't know it's Him. They've been supernaturally prevented from recognizing Him. And instead, He explains who the Messiah is, who He is, but it seems like He's doing this in the third person. He's talking about Himself, but He doesn't say, it's me. He explains who the Messiah is from the Old Testament, all of it. First five books, the law, Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then it says the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, the minor prophets, and all the rest, which means he goes to the Psalms, he goes to Proverbs, he goes to Job, he goes to Kings and Chronicles, and he's showing them over and over and over and over every part of the scriptures that the Messiah must suffer and die and rise on the third day. This is what the whole Bible, all of the Old Testament has been saying for centuries. This is what he does. Now, why do you think Jesus uses this strategy? Remember his goals. Give them knowledge of who he is, the full gospel, and knowledge of his resurrection. They would be convinced he's actually alive. Why does he start with the Old Testament? Here's why. This is a very important principle. Being convinced of the resurrection by the scriptures is more life-changing and more powerful than seeing the risen Jesus. You think, no, that can't possibly be true. I'm going to say it one more time. Being convinced of the resurrection by the scriptures is more life-changing and more powerful than seeing the risen Jesus. Jesus wanted to tie their understanding of his resurrection to faith in God's word before they experienced seeing him physically resurrected. This is amazing. Remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus that Jesus told way back in Luke chapter 16? So this is way before his crucifixion. There's a rich man, healthy man, and he was wicked. And there's a poor man, starving, sick, named Lazarus, who was righteous. They both died. Lazarus went to heaven. He's hanging out with Abraham in paradise. And the rich man went to hell. He's suffering in the flames. And he calls out to Abraham from hell to where he and Lazarus are in heaven. And he asks for relief. He begs him, would you send Lazarus with just one drop of water to cool my tongue? And Abraham says, no. No, you had your chance in life. You had your comforts there. And he's now being comforted here. Then it says this in verse 27. This is the rich man talking. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told him, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. You look at what Jesus does with these two disciples in light of that teaching, 
And you say, ah, (laughs) Jesus is putting his money where his mouth is. Jesus is convinced that it is way better for you to be convinced of his resurrection from the word of God in the scriptures than for him to show up right here on this stage and show you the holes in his hands and feet. If he just, boom, just appeared right here, he would tell you, it'd be better for you to be convinced from the scriptures than to see me physically resurrected. Jesus knew emotions ebb and flow. Experiences fade. Memories get fuzzy. I think he knew that when these two disciples eventually recognized him, it would be probably the greatest experience of their lives. I mean, what would be greater than that? The joy, the astonishment, the wonder, the thrill of having the risen Jesus right before their eyes, it would be amazing. But it wouldn't last. Not in a broken world. And so he gave them something much less exciting emotionally, but much more valuable much more powerful. He convinced them of who he was and that he was alive from the scriptures. And as this idea has sunk in for me this week, I just, I have felt so loved by God. I have just felt so privileged to live in this time and place because there are times, have you ever had the thought, man, I wish I could have been there. I think that all the time. I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have seen him heal a blind person. I wish I could have been there and and sat on the hill for the Sermon on the Mount, heard him teach. I wish I could have sat around the fire with him, told jokes with the disciples, you know, (laughs) cracking jokes, laughing with Jesus. I wish I could have asked him a question, given him a hug. I think about that all the time. Who would not want those experiences there's been times, if I'm honest, where I feel a sense of jealousy toward that generation of disciples. Where I think, man, if if I could have just seen Jesus do a miracle, it would make some of the difficulty of following him now a whole lot more tolerable. But it's not true. Jesus shows us right here that to know him from his word is superior. It's more valuable. It's more concrete. It's more powerful. It is better for you and me in every way. You say, why? How could that possibly be true? Let me give you a few reasons. First, because Jesus, as a physical flesh and blood man, was limited. It's only one of him. Now, as the second member of the Trinity, the eternal son of God, he's not limited at all. He just speaks the universe into existence. He has no limitations. He's infinite in power, knowledge. But as a man incarnate, born of a virgin, entered into human history, he could only have one conversation at a time. He only had so much time in the day. He had a limited relational capacity. He could only have so many friends. Have you ever thought about that? Why was there only 12? But when you know him from his word, by the power of his spirit, you get unlimited access to Christ. You can hear from him anytime. You can talk to him anytime. You can be with him all the time. Secondly, knowing God from his word is better because Jesus' relationships could multiply exponentially. They could multiply exponentially. Jesus didn't want dozens or even hundreds of disciples, he wanted billions. Again, going back to Genesis, 
What does God say to Abraham? He says, look at, look at the stars in the sky. Try to count them. He says, your descendants are going to be more than that. Look at, the, look at the sand on the seashore. Try to count it. Your descendants are going to be more than that. And the way that Abraham's descendants would be multiplied is through the gospel. It's through the seed of the gospel. Jesus didn't just want dozens, hundreds, thousands of followers. He wanted billions upon billions. And if God didn't set up the ability to know him from his word through his spirit as the main way you know him in relationship, then you and I would not be here today. You realize that? We wouldn't know him. We couldn't know him. But as it stands, we are actually more privileged, I think, than the original disciples. Because not only do we have the Old Testament where we can meet and hear from Jesus, we also have the New Testament. We have the recorded words of Jesus. We have all the instructions and encouragement and correction given to his church through his apostles. We have proof of the resurrection in the New Testament scriptures. We have attestation to it, prophecy of it in the Old Testament, and we have the evidence of it in the New Testament. It's remarkable. Verse 28 says, they came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going further. But they urged him, stay with us, because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened. Again, passive voice. And they recognized him. But he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? Why were their hearts burning? What was going on there? They didn't know who this was yet. They had no inclination that this was actually the Lord Jesus. Their hearts were burning because they were becoming convinced from the scriptures that Jesus must be alive. Oh my goodness. This guy knows what he's talking about. Jesus must be alive. And there there was hope welling up in them before they actually even saw him physically. They had undeniable proof that he was alive. They're beginning to believe because of the testimony of the Bible. Jesus was crucified. The tomb is empty. And based on what the scriptures say, he must be alive. This is what's so amazing about the Bible. It was written over the course of roughly 2,000 years, has over 40 different authors, and it has one consistent, cohesive story and message. Just one. That God would send His Son to save sinners by dying on a cross and rising on the third day. How could you get that consistent story? Over 2,000 years with 40 different authors who never even knew each other, most of them. Unless this is actually God's Word. So how do you know Jesus is alive? That was our first question. His Word declares it. That's how you know. How do you know Jesus personally? By believing His Word. You go all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 15. It says that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. God said it, and Abraham said, okay, I'm in. I believe that. And it works the same way today. You know him by believing his word. Verse 33, that very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them gathered together who said, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. So apparently, Jesus has already appeared to Simon at this point. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. 
Do you want to meet Jesus exactly the same way these two disciples did on that first Easter Sunday? I do. Do you know that you can? I mean, unless I'm missing something, your heart and mind can burn the same way theirs did. All you have to do is open the book. That's all, that's all you do. You can become convinced of the resurrection and discover the person of Jesus as your Savior in the Scriptures. That's what happens to these two guys. You look at this, the amazing thing is not that Jesus, boom, kind of appeared supernaturally and then boom, disappeared right away. That would have been kind of weird. You probably think, am I, am I losing it? Like, am I crazy? The amazing part of this story is the two-hour conversation, three-hour conversation where Jesus explains the scriptures. It is impossible to overemphasize the importance of the Bible. It is the place where you meet God. The place. It's not in church. It's not in Christian fellowship. It's not even in prayer. Now, you do experience God in relationship in those places. I don't want to diminish them. But the primary place where God reveals himself to you is his written word. That's the primary place. Hebrews 4 says the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates into your very soul. He judges the thoughts and intentions of your heart through his word. As you read it, he works on you. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is inspired by God, breathed out by God and profitable. So just to close, I want to just ask you, how are you handling God's word? How are you handling it? Do you know what you're dealing with, with the Bible that you hold in your hands? Do you read it regularly? Do you study it diligently? Do you obey it faithfully? Do you submit to it humbly? Sometimes when, when, when we get into talking about, okay, how often are you reading your Bible? How diligently are you studying it? How much are you talking about it? It can feel like a weight, like, oh, you're just putting uh, to-do list. You're putting, you're putting stuff, items on my to-do list, Darren. That's the wrong way to look at it. This is where you get to experience God himself. This is where you get to know him and hear from him. And if you will step out in faith and prioritize God's word, you will experience him in relationship. It will bless your life. He will counsel you. He will comfort you. He will correct you in love. He'll give you wisdom. He'll give you spiritual strength. It comes from knowing Him. It's not the pages. It's not the physical Bible. But God's words are in there. He wants to speak with you. He, he, wants, he wants you to know Him intimately. There's no substitute for His word. Let's pray. Father, thank You for just the gift of the scriptures. We could talk for three more hours about how we got the Bible that we have today. And it is unbelievable. It is a supernatural thing. God, that you have preserved your word over thousands of years. And that we could have such great confidence that what we have in the Bible today is what was written down originally. Hasn't been changed, hasn't been altered hasn't been reinterpreted. It's an amazing, amazing book. There's nothing like it. And it is because it's your book. It is your words to us. 
God, I pray that we'd be a church that treasures the Bible. God, that we would, we would prioritize time in your word, that it would be on our, our minds and in our speech. When we talk with each other, we'd be talking about your word all the time. Just like we talk about how I had a conversation with a mutual friend. We talk about what you're teaching us in your word. I thank you so much for your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to continue to worship.